Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the biggest issue going on in global politics today, which is, of course, the crisis in Ukraine. If you think this doesn't impact Israel, then you'd be wrong. Israelis have been following events there closely, and the government just a few days ago evacuated its embassy in Kyiv and has urged all its citizens to come back home before any potential Russian invasion. To help us make sense of events in Eastern Europe and how it impacts the Middle East, we have with us today Russia expert Anna Borshevskaya from Washington, D.C. Anna is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and the author of Putin's War in Syria, Russian Foreign Policy and the Price of America's Absence. This was a really timely and important conversation with Anna as she broke down what may be going through Vladimir Putin's head. Let's jump right into it. Hi, Anna. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Neri. It's great to be on your podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm sure it's been a hectic last few weeks on your end, given developments in the Ukraine. Uh, So just by way of context, we're taping this on Wednesday afternoon, Israel time. Uh, And obviously, it's a very fluid situation, as they say, uh, in Ukraine and on the border with Russia, and things may change on the ground over there, you know, before this episode goes up. But I think it's safe to say that the state of play remains the same as it has in recent weeks, 150,000 Russian troops massed on the Ukrainian border, uh, Western leaders, including President Biden, warning of an imminent Russian invasion, uh, along with, I guess, descriptions of this being the worst European crisis and possibly the worst crisis period since the end of the Cold War. So, Anna, I wanted to start here. Uh, Give us some context. Uh, This crisis began last fall with the Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, moving his forces to the Ukrainian border. What, to your mind, has he done this time that's so different from past Russian moves? And why has the Western response and the American response been so alarmed at what they were seeing on the Russian side? This buildup is uh, far more serious than anything uh, Russia has done before. And, And there have been many uh, Russian buildups uh, around Ukraine in the past uh, eight years. Remember, Russia has been fighting a war with uh, with Ukraine for the last eight years. Uh, but the scale of this particular buildup is like nothing we have ever seen before, and that's that's what makes it it's so different. It's the scale, it's the type of weaponry uh, that Russia is bringing in. It, Ukraine at this stage is surrounded on three fronts, essentially, and. Uh, from uh, not only from the Russian border, uh, kind of in a sort of a horseshoe pattern, uh, but also along Belarus uh, and uh, the, uh, uh, the the uh, the coast, which includes Crimea and the Sea of Azov. And on top of that, you're seeing uh, a, a Russian buildup in uh, increased buildup in the Black Sea and in, in the Mediterranean b- beyond what was already there before. Um, so. Essentially, uh, the types of weaponry that Russia is bringing in, the way it's setting up its positions, um, suggests that it is preparing to set up uh, what's called an A2AD bubble, anti-area access denial bubble over Ukraine. And it, 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 it certainly, if that were to happen, it would be on a far bigger scale than what Russia did in Syria, for sure. 
and and that's why uh, this is causing uh, this is causing such alarm. We have not seen such a buildup to the extent that's that serious. And on top of which, if you look at the demands. Uh, that that the Kremlin is putting forth. We've never seen uh, Putin and company put forth demands of this extreme nature. Like what? What has he been demanding of of the West and of NATO? He's essentially demanding uh, that not only does he want written guarantees that Ukraine never joins NATO. Uh, this is really his demands really go far beyond Ukraine, and this buildup is is uh, not really about Ukraine. It is a little bit about Ukraine, but mostly about the entire European security architecture. He essentially wants NATO to withdraw to uh, pre uh, nineteen ninety seven borders. Um, he wants the kinds of assurances that NATO is simply not in a position to give, and uh, these demands are non starters because it's just simply not the way NATO works. He wants an essentially he's looking to push the United States out of Europe, and that has global implication. That certainly goes far beyond Europe too. What Putin is doing is ba- is is looking to erode the U.S. led global order. And just as the Syria intervention was not fundamentally about Syria, it was about countering the United States, this Ukraine crisis is the next step on a far bigger scale. Because ultimately what Putin is trying to do is to replay the Cold War with an alternate ending. That's what this is about. That's what's at the heart of this issue right now, a Cold War with an alternate ending. Mm, Interesting. Obviously, the the decision to invade is up to one man, and that's Vladimir Putin. And he's amassing these forces. Do you think, like some people do, that it's just a, a leverage play to apply pressure on Ukraine and NATO and Europe, like you said? Or do you actually think there's credence to the threat, at least, of a mass invasion? So the challenge with this issue has been for, for months is that because... We've seen Russian Russian buildups before. These buildups were always instruments of pressure, of coercion to get something out. Uh, basically, basically, these were a negotiating tactic. Um, uh, having said that, um, the debate on this issue boils down to essentially whether or not, at this stage, Putin has backed himself into a corner to the point where, if he does not invade, he loses face. Uh, and and this is different. And this is different than what we've seen we've seen with 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 previous buildups. I do think that the way Russia is positioning its its military uh, hardware, and also simply looking at how Russia conducted itself uh, in recent years, he would look to do uh, a limited uh, incursion as opposed to a, a complete full on conventional invasion. The problem, of course, is that even a limited incursion will be enough to taking strategic parts uh, of Ukraine's uh, sort of strategic choke points that could make Ukraine economically inviable. Um, so, and this is why Zelensky had tweeted a few weeks ago, there's no such thing as a minor incursion. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, Putin's Russia is, uh, is has been to date very much conscious of overextension and overcommittal of resources. And so it's been pursuing a strategy of limited actions abroad. Um, the question is, though, specifically with you know with Ukraine, uh, there will be an insurgency, and the uh, the situation has a, uh, much more than any other Russian uh, military adventures. This particular one has the potential of becoming far more costly uh, than all of his other adventures before. 
So let me delve into that point. You've written extensively about what you just called the limited actions abroad, uh, where you've seen Russia deploy military force, but primarily air power, long-range missiles. They have local proxies and militias running around, uh, psyops, cyber, even special forces. So that's, you know, think of Syria, right? We've also seen it uh, in other places as well, Georgia, Chechnya even in eastern Ukraine several years ago. So am I right to say that, you know, sending in rows and rows of armored tanks and infantry would be be very different than this limited action abroad Russian way of war that we've seen over the past 20 years from Putin? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And again, what you're seeing, if you you study it, how the Russian military has reformed over the years, they've decided that they no longer want to have what they experienced in World War II, where you had uh, shoulders, uh, soldiers, shoulder to shoulder in the trenches. You're seeing Russia. Russia has brought in the S-400 in uh, around Ukraine. Russia has brought in the Iskander missiles, anti-aircraft. That's right. Uh, that's right. So you're, you're you're talking about trying to build. Well, basically, Russia is trying to build a primarily aerial operation. Uh, if if they do conduct one, so they they're looking to take control of the Ukrainian skies. Having said that, again, uh, I think. It would be more complicated. Ukraine would be more complicated than Syria, but uh, but you are seeing the same, uh, you know, the, the same in broad strokes, the same elements, the, the same uh, emphasis on aerospace uh, forces over ground troops. Gotcha, gotcha. So very interesting that w- there's all talk about invasion, no invasion, but it's a bit, it's a bit more involved, right? There might right. be different types of invasions, more limited actions, hybrid war, as right. opposed to sending in tanks to take to take Kiev. That's right. Uh, now, 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 this doesn't mean, I don't, I don't think we should exclude any possibility. Uh, the, the idea of eventually coming in, taking Kiev should not be uh, considered uh, out of the realm of reality either. Uh, but, um, and again, that's what makes the situation so, uh, uh, so dangerous. Okay. So, Let's talk about the U.S. and and Western response to all this. Uh, Obviously, President Biden and other Western leaders have almost from the from the mountaintops uh, made this a high priority internationally. Uh, They've threatened massive sanctions on Russia if it were to go ahead with an invasion. Uh, They've sent more weapons, primarily defensive weapons, to the Ukrainian military. Uh, We've seen the U.S. and primarily the British intelligence agencies made public various intelligence assessments that they've had, basically calling out the Russian side ahead of time. Uh, so from your assessment, how do you think Biden and the West have done so far in terms of pushing back against Putin and trying to deter Putin from from taking these very severe actions? Well, it's clear that uh, that the Biden administration and the West overall is taking this uh, far more seriously than anything else uh, Putin has ever done. And they are determined uh, to prevent another 2014. We are signaling that we're prepared to go farther than than ever before. Uh, Having said that, uh, a few things uh, we could have done, uh, we, we could have done better. For example, there was no need for President Biden to say uh, openly that the United States will not be sending troops uh, to Ukraine. This uh, th- this gives away uh, this this gives away critical leverage. 
if you want to keep your, if you want to keep your adversary guessing, you shouldn't be making public uh, announcements like that. This Biden probably made it more for a domestic audience, but this is again one of these issues where, uh, from a foreign policy perspective, it would have made more sense not to do that. Uh, from a big picture perspective, I think our uh, biggest uh, drawback has been twofold. We, the Russian state has employed all elements of coercion or what some analysts have called compellence. We, they've amassed troops. They've involved, they've, they've conducted cyber operations. I mean, if you talk to Ukrainians, they will say the war is already going on. Again, they have been fighting a war before, um, uh, even before the, this buildup. Uh, the Russian officials also suggested that they may place, um, nuclear weaponry in Cuba or Venezuela uh, and diplomacy. So basically they, they depl- the Russian state deployed what we would call ironically a whole of government approach. We, we have not done that. And I think that's the biggest drawback. We m- mainly focused on diplomacy and we, we talked about sanctions if Russia acts uh, and so forth. We did talk about sending military aid to Ukraine, although most of it has been defensive. So it's clear that we are committed We've signaled that, but we have not, but we still have this disconnect between uh, 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 the the way between different uh, uh, sectors of our government in the way the Russian government does not have. And so we've simply, to this day, put it this way, we have yet, we we haven't yet put forth an active deterrence. Uh, We also haven't played up a a narrative issue. Um, Again, with Russia, any military actions, any cyber operations, they follow with a narrative. The key narrative uh, coming out of Putin uh, and the Kremlin has been that there is a quote-unquote genocide that the West is perpetrating in Ukraine, that all of these actions that Russia is taking are purely defensive. And that it is the West that is pushing Russia towards a war it does not want to fight. We could have been more proactive in countering this narrative, and especially because we've heard this narrative before, it's not new at all. Uh, we could have instead put forth uh, exactly the type of violence that Russia has perpetrated against Ukrainians for all the world to see, and we could have supplemented that with with our actions. Uh, obviously, we'll have to see how these events um, evolve in the coming weeks, but uh, that, that's that, that's my assessment. Right. Remains to be seen whether the actions taken by the U.S. and its allies uh, have done enough to deter Putin. Right. Uh, but again, nobody knows that just yet. Uh, let me ask you, you touched on it a bit earlier. Uh, if Putin were to move into Ukraine, uh, how well equipped are the Ukrainians themselves to actually fight back? Uh, you know, I think conventionally military to military, it's seen as uh, not really uh, an equal fight, but is there a prospect that an insurgency, like you said, or other non-conventional means uh, can actually bloody uh, Putin's army? Well, all assessment points to the fact that the Ukrainian military is in far better shape than it was in 2014. They're, they're ready. In 2014, they, they, the, the government was in disarray, uh, and Russia simply took advantage of chaos, uh, uh, th- at this point, the Ukrainians are ready. They've had eight years of, of fighting, of advice from the West, of uh, of, of training, uh, and and so forth. Uh, so there's no question that they're far better prepared. But there's also little doubt that the Russian military is simply bigger and can very easily overwhelm Ukraine, absent serious assistance that we provide. And that assistance has to go beyond uh, things like. Um, uh, you know, helmets <laughs> that the German government had sent right. in. 
And and again, to be sure, I don't mean to make light of it. Uh, it, it we, we've certainly sent in more serious uh, aid, uh, but without uh, uh, without a substantive commitment, for example, to um, help Ukrainian create an a window for Ukrainian um, forces to reinf uh, to reinforce to get reinforcements because they're surrounded on three fronts. Um, I, I think what could happen is this would be incredibly bloody and, and tragic. The Ukrainian the Russian military will overwhelm uh, the Ukrainian military, but and they will put up a fight. There's no question that the Ukrainians will fight. No one doubts that. Um, and then uh, we can foresee, imagine a situation where an insurgency eventually comes up. So Ukrainians will continue fighting no matter what. Uh, but this this can be incredibly bloody and tragic. Right. Uh, something nobody wants to see. Just to remind our listeners, Anna, uh, in 2014, Putin t did take action against Ukraine. He seized Crimea. He moved into eastern Ukraine, uh, the Donbass region. Is that is that right? Right. So first, I mean, first and foremost, Putin seized Crimea uh, uh, illegally. Uh, Putin broke treaty obligations that Russia has towards Ukraine, uh, most uh, mo most notably the the so-called Budapest Memorandum, uh, uh, a memorandum that, according to which Ukraine had agreed to give up its nuclear arsenal, third largest in the world at the time, it, it had shipped it to Russia. Russia uh, promised to respect Ukraine's sovereignty. Uh, so Russia is in a complete violation of its treaty obligations to its neighbor. Uh, and after uh, annexing Crimea illegally from Ukraine, uh, concocting a fake, basically a, a fake referendum where residents of Crimea voted under the barrel of a Russian gun about whether or not they wanted to be part of Russia, the Russian state had moved into eastern Ukraine, as you mentioned, and basically fomented low-scale violence. You know, analysts call it a frozen conflict, but no conflict is really truly frozen, and certainly not this particular one, uh, even compared to other so-called frozen conflicts on Russia's periphery. This one has been uh, very active. Uh, there's been probably almost no one in Ukraine who hasn't had at least someone in their family fighting over the last eight years. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, keep in mind also how big Ukraine is. It's a country of over 40 million. You know, this is not a peripheral uh, crisis somewhere in the outskirts of Europe. This is actually at the heart uh, of Europe. Uh, historically, too, Ukraine played a crucially important role in in the history of Europe. So this is uh, this is not a peripheral crisis, as some might think about it. The, the, I believe, if I recall correctly, the area of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk alone is about the size of Switzerland. Mm, this is the region in eastern Ukraine bordering Russia. That's right. And like you said, uh, Ukraine, not a small country. Uh, it might seem like it's on the periphery of things, but as you laid out at the top, uh, this goes deeper, strikes at the very heart of NATO and Europe and uh, I would argue, you know, America's credibility and standing. Uh, would you agree? Absolutely. I would absolutely agree with that. So let's turn to Israel's role in all this. Uh, I think it's fair to say it's a bit complicated. Uh, Israeli Foreign Minister Lapid uh, a few days ago in an interview said that he's been more cautious than any other foreign minister in the Western world uh, with regard to his public pronouncements about this crisis. Uh, you know, I've heard it from Israeli officials uh, for a number of years here. They like to say that uh, they have a new neighbor uh, in the neighborhood uh, to the north, right. and that new neighbor is, is Russia. Right. Uh, who, who, as we said, has been in Syria militarily since 
uh, September of 2015, I think. Yes, that's right. Propping up the Assad regime uh, in in Syria. So lay out from your perspective why it's been so complicated for Israel uh, in terms of uh, its public pronouncements on the crisis. Uh, obviously, Israel, a close, close ally of the United States. Uh, but at the same time, it has some relationships, some important strategic relationships with Russia. Sure. And it, th- this phrase that you mentioned, a uh, neighbor to the north, is, of course, something that I've also been hearing from Israeli analysts and officials exactly since since September uh, 2015. Uh, well, well, look, on, you know, on the one hand, Israel finds itself in a very tough position because uh, once uh, Russia entered the Syrian theater, it took control of the Syrian skies. And Israel became dependent on Russia's goodwill to allow it to conduct its airstrikes against Iranian-backed targets on on Syrian soil. What Putin has accomplished here with this move is is symptomatic of what he has done across the entire Middle East region, which is that he worked to build very pragmatic, very realpolitik, hard-nosed leverage over all actors uh, in the region. And... um, and this is something that uh, that Israel certainly feels. Uh, unfortunately, what P- uh, Putin also seems to have uh, been able to achieve is convince many in the Israeli government that Russia is able to limit Iranian presence in Syria in in, in a meaningful way. And from the Israeli perspective, it's understandable that given the existential crisis uh, that uh, Iran presents to uh, to Israel, um, it's understandable that it's better to have Russia in uh, Syria than Iran. Uh, but uh, but uh, unfortunately, I, I think there was a lot of wishful thinking over the years on the part of, uh, of of Israeli leadership in this regard, because ultimately Russia and Iran are part of the same strategic set. We've never seen any real evidence that Russia is either able or willing to push back in any meaningful way against Iran in Syria. It's one thing to, you know, looking the other way um, at Israeli uh, airstrikes uh, is is not really meaningful because it, it frankly helps Russia to a certain extent that it, Iran does not get too powerful. But but uh, that that that's a very different that's a very different issue than uh, than uh, something more substantive than that. Um, and uh, unfortunately, looking at the Ukraine crisis, what's been interesting to observe is, uh, I'm sure you've seen in, in recent weeks, there were reports that Ukraine uh, was looking to uh, formally recognize Jerusalem as Israeli uh, capital and was also uh, Israel's capital and was working on a, on a weapons deal with Israel. Uh, unfortunately, according to press reports, this deal seems to have ceased. And it's, you know, one way to read that is simply that Israel was too worried about angering Russia over the Ukraine crisis and is simply trying to walk a very fine line. And it's unfortunate to observe, especially because Vladimir Zelensky is Jewish and Ukraine, for all its many problems of corruption that we know very well, is also a far freer country, a country that aspires to be a democracy, a country that, unlike all other countries in the post-Soviet space, simply refuses to yield to Russia's authoritarianism. And this is something that Ukraine and Israel very much share. Uh, it's, uh, they share values. So this shows you what a difficult predicament uh, we're facing with regard to the situation between Russia uh, and Israel and Ukraine, this sort of triangle, uh, if you will. Yes, it's a, it's a complicated dance, a very tight 
tightrope that Israeli leaders uh, are walking and they've said it publicly. Yes, exactly. Lapid and others have uh, also name-checked, and this isn't a minor issue, but they've also name-checked the large Jewish communities in both Ukraine and Russia and the fact that they have to be very, very mindful of, of their security when it comes to what, uh, what Israel and Israeli politicians say. Um, on the issue of arms sales, I don't know if you saw a report yesterday in the Israeli newspaper Yedot Achonot uh, regarding Israel essentially halting or canceling the sale by the U.S. of its Iron Dome missile defense system uh, to Ukraine so as not to essentially anger the Russians. Uh, what do you think about this report that the U.S. was at least contemplating selling an Iron Dome to the Ukrainians? Uh, well, uh, it was important to at the very least consider this. It goes back to the, the issues that we talked about before. We, uh, to date, we have not really done enough to deter Russia. The reason why we're in this crisis is because we have not effectively deterred Russia. Sanctions alone uh, certainly have not done done the trick. Another example of this is f- we provided, for example, the Ukrainian Navy with refurbished, refurbished uh, U.S. Coast Guard uh, iron-class patrol boats, and that this was a very good idea. The problem is that we provided them with no offensive missile capability. And this, again, goes back to the issue of deterrence. And the fact of the matter is defensive capabilities have yet to deter Russia. So Israel also uh, is looking on with a worried glance at the Ukraine crisis for another reason, and that's due to its potential impact on the ongoing Iran nuclear talks in Vienna. Um, I guess the concern from Israel, and I wanted to get your your sense of it, is that the Ukraine crisis could actually uh, splinter the various world powers, including Russia, that are negotiating with Iran over its uh, nuclear program, or conversely, it might just take world attention away from the one issue that Israel deems uh, the biggest and most threatening issue to it, and that's Iran. Uh, so do you think the Ukraine crisis uh, will impact the Iran nuclear talks, uh, or is it two separate things entirely, and, and world powers can uh, chew gum and walk at the same time? Well, uh, as far as Russia goes, uh, uh, Russia has always been very good at compartmentalizing issues uh, when it comes when it came to dealing with with any of its uh, partners. the uh, The point that I've always made about the Iran deal um, pre two thousand fifteen is that Russia, uh, uh, on the one hand, signaled that it would prefer a nu- non-nuclear Iran. And I actually think that that's accurate. I, I do think they would prefer uh, a non-nuclear Iran. But at the same time, they would sort of turn around and act as Iran's lawyer, as as people who, who participated in these talks had described it to me. Uh, in, the, in pre-2015 years, Russia always diluted sanctions against Iran. They always said that uh, Iran, Western concerns about the Iranian nuclear program are overblown. Uh, and ultimately... If, so if you sort of read between the lines, uh, what I always um, surmised is that although Russia would prefer a non-nuclear Iran, they're simply not as concerned about it as, as we are in the West. And ultimately, it is something that they can live with. What they cannot live with is a pro-Western Iran. And if, if, you, uh, if we look at back at the time 
of the 2015 negotiations, uh, th- that issue seemed to have been more in the forefront of Russian's thought than perhaps it is right now. And again, it may seem unthinkable to us, but from a Russian perspective, especially because there was a time when Iran was pro-Western, uh, it's not uh, it's not an unrealistic uh, notion. Because ultimately, if you think about it, w- uh, what matters uh, from the Russian state perspective is whether or not a country is friendly to them. If a country is friendly to them and has nuclear weapons, that's not really an issue of concern, right? What I also noted with interest is that although Russia was very critical of the Trump administration tearing up the uh, the Iran deal, Russia-Iran trade, bilateral trade, had actually uh, slowly increased over, over those last several years. And so uh, uh, kind of one way or the other, being out of the Iran deal gives Russia advantages in terms of trade, but also uh, it allows Russia to criticize uh, the United States for acting unilaterally. Being part of the negotiations is critically important because it positions Russia as as an indispensable international actor, right? a great power without which international decisions uh, cannot be made. So I, I think uh, they, they do seem to want the Iran deal, uh, but also they're simply not, they don't feel that type of pressure uh, that we feel in the West. This is interesting. You would say that, of course, Russia would prefer that Iran not gain a nuclear weapon, but that it might be more concerned about an Iran post any nuclear agreement actually opening up more to the West, more trade ties to the West, uh, perhaps at the expense of its relationship with Moscow. Right, uh, right, and that that has been a that, that has been a historic r- Russian concern. Final question to you, Anna, and you've written a book about uh, Russian foreign policy in the Middle East and the absence, uh, as it says in the title, of America in the Middle East and Russia taking advantage of that. So in your mind, what do you think the Ukraine crisis uh, can imply, does imply about the U.S. role in the Middle East? Uh, You know, we've seen Washington already begin this uh, so-called pivot to Asia and the need to confront China. Then you have all of a sudden this this major crisis in Europe. Um, do you think it's just another step in the U.S. leaving the Middle East, or do you think the Middle East will still have importance and relevance uh, for America, if nothing else, due to the energy supply that comes from the Middle East? Uh, well, perhaps the most important uh, consequence for the Ukraine crisis when it comes to the Middle East is that Russia now has a strategic uh, military position on the Eastern Mediterranean. And because Russia has this, uh, this position, the, not only the, the naval facility, but the, the, the Khmeimim air base, it is using it to project, uh, uh, to, to increase its power projection uh, into the Black Sea. So it gives Russia added uh, an added pressure point on Ukraine. Unfortunately, the West uh, had missed how strategically vital it would be for uh, our interests beyond the Middle East to have Russia entrenched in Syria in this way. We, we uh, many in the West, thought that um, uh, the 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 Syria intervention will result in a quagmire for Russia. And what I talk about in the book is is precisely how the intervention was designed to avoid a quagmire. And certainly uh, the pivot to Asia will remain in place. Uh, in fact, China is watching Ukraine very carefully. I, I think there's no doubt. There's no doubt of that. And it does put the Middle East in uh, a difficult predicament. The United States is not looking to uh, leave the Middle East. Uh, but the way the region uh, is reading it, 
uh, at least in my experience thus far, is the region is simply diversifying. Uh, inex- they're not really looking to choose between Russia, China, uh, and the United States. They're diversifying their foreign policy precisely because they're watching uh, these events unfold and they want to have more security, which they, they, they currently don't feel. I see. So everyone like us uh, as observers, but these are sovereign states, they're looking on at the Ukraine crisis and reaching their own conclusions about their own specific situations, whether in the Middle East or, like you said, in Asia, in Europe. And I, I would also add to that, looking at overall regional reactions, it not Israel is not the only country that is walking a very fine line. All other uh, region, countries in the region are, are trying to stay out of this uh, crisis. Uh, you, you, one could perhaps say, with the exception of Turkey, with its provision of drones, but even so, uh, uh, first, it's unclear how much of a difference those drones would really make. And second, Turkey is also very reluctant to go too far uh, to anger Russia. So the entire region is really, uh, it, it, at least in what I've observed, is sort of taking a step back and walking that fine line that you talked about earlier. Right. So Israel, one of one of many, perhaps, but we always we always think we're unique and special, <laughs> like like Lapid said, you know, the the most uh, the most cautious uh, Western foreign minister. Um, Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to break it all down for us. Uh, obviously, it is the biggest story right now, uh, the most important story, and uh, hopefully, it's resolved peacefully. But uh, I guess it's true what they say that it uh, all depends on one man. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Anna. Okay, that was Anna Borshevskaya. Many thanks to her for her great insights. Also, thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening.